It was a day like no other. My name is Michael Douglas, and I just want to talk about the most brilliant director that I've ever worked with, Louis Teague, who, uh, except for Steven Soderbergh, is perhaps the most talented. Actually, uh, seriously, this is uh, Louis Teague, and uh, I've been invited to do this commentary, uh, which is exciting for me, uh, after all these years, to go back and revisit uh, one of my favorite films, a film that certainly helped launch my career. and my first opportunity to uh, work with major stars. I'd worked with a lot of fine actors before this, but this film is definitely a step up in terms of the stars that I was working with, the size of the budget, the ambitiousness of the project, and and, uh, I was fairly confident that it was going to be a successful film. And the reason I thought it was going to be a successful film is that Michael Douglas was connected with it. That more than anything else. Of course, I was a fan of Romancing the Stone. I'd seen that a couple of times, laughed my ass off, and thought it was a brilliantly made movie. And was also familiar with Michael's career and all the work that he'd done. And how every single film that he was connected with was done with, made with, a considerable amount of quality. And so I... I assumed that being a bright, talented person, he, and having good judgment, that not only did he attract good people to work with him, but he inspired them to work to a higher level of creativity and talent. So that was my bottom line. I knew that since Michael was involved with it, that it was going to, I had the faith that it was going to turn out well. And the fact that it was a sequel and the characters were established was also an inducement to do it. Uh, that also assured me that it was, if I could, to some degree, capture the same qualities that Romancing the Stone had, uh, that, it would, that it would turn out well. Uh, when I first met with Michael Douglas, uh, I was finishing up a, Stephen King's Cat's Eye. We were still, we were doing the sound mix, actually, that weekend when I got a call from my agent to come to New York and, and talk to Michael about doing the sequel to Romancing the Stone. Uh, <laughs> I was, I was, I should have been in bed with the flu. I ha- I didn't want to go, but it was an opportunity I couldn't turn down. I hopped on a plane, went to New York, met with Michael. We got along, and he said something which was significant to me, which I hung on to. He had obviously done his homework and looked at the body of work. Uh, that I had done, and said that uh, one of the qualities in my work as a director that attracted him was a sense of realism. So when I was directing this film, and even though some of it, especially the opening, uh, is unrealistic, I would, the underlying quality of the rest of the film, starting with this sequence right here, which we shot in Villefranche, would be based on realism, that the characters would be real, and that wherever possible people would be engaged uh, in what I call RHB, recognizable human behavior. For those of you that aren't familiar with my career, or all of it, uh, the films that I'd done prior to this were all relatively low-budget films. I started off with Roger Corman directing a film based on a John Sayles script called The Lady in Red. After that, I did a 
a horror film spoof called Alligator, and I brought in John Sales to write the script for that also. I did a couple of films for Dino De Laurentiis. I did a movie called Fighting Back for Dino De Laurentiis, which was relatively low budget, uh, and two Stephen King films. Stephen King's Cujo, which is one of my personal favorites, along with this film, Jewel of the Nile, and Stephen King's Cat's Eye, which I was editing when I got the call from Michael Douglas to come to New York and interview for this film. Looking at this uh, scene, which we shot in Villefrance, which is just a little bit east of Nice on the Mediterranean coast in France, uh, brings back a lot of fantastic memories. Uh, even though when I'm making a movie, I'm focused on the goal, which is to make the best possible film a, and a successful film, uh, I never lose sight of the process. Uh, the process of filmmaking, uh, being on a set, directing actors, being on location, being in a different part of the world is exciting. And, it's, I, and at times I consider myself the luckiest guy in the world. Here I was in the south of France on the Mediterranean coast uh, sitting on a sailboat, and I am a sailor, uh, making a film with two major stars. Uh, and I remember this day sitting on this boat in the sunlight, working with these two incredibly talented actors and thinking, it doesn't get any better than this. No, I just didn't have time today to ravage the Riviera for your beer. Tough day, huh? Yeah, you could say The uh, script had already been written. There was a first draft when Michael hired me. Uh, there was rewriting being done. Uh, the film, the studio wanted to release it that winter, Christmas, I believe, during the Christmas season. So there was a rush to get the film shot in the can, finished, and released. So Michael stayed back in California working on the rewrites as I went to Europe and started looking for locations. Uh, we, the, the stars had already been cast, so that was the, the easy part. Casting was fairly easy on this film. I'll talk more about that later as different characters pop up. Uh, but the leads, of course, were there. Michael, Kathleen, and Danny. Uh, and I had to head to Europe and find locations. Part of the film took place in France and the Mediterranean, so obviously we looked for and found locations in France. And uh, part of the film takes place in uh, along the Nile. Uh, so we headed to uh, the Middle East. Uh, we looked in Israel. Israel was attractive because it has the infrastructure to make movies. Uh, we would have found all our technical people there that we needed. So there, there were advantages to shooting in Israel. Uh, but we also looked in Morocco because of the variety of terrain in Morocco. That's not the next so Michael worked on the script with the actors. Uh, to some degree, the story dictated itself. Uh, the end of, as you remember, the Romancing the Stone ended with Jack and Joan driving up or being towed up Fifth Avenue in a sailboat or one of the avenues in New York uh, to go off and live out Jack's dream, which was to sail around the world on a sailboat. 
So naturally, the picture, this story, would have to begin six months or so later with them on the sailboat facing the reality of what it's like to commit oneself to sailing around the world on a sailboat. Now, I'm a sailor, as I said before. I haven't circumnavigated, but I've done a lot of sailing. This year, I've uh, sailed from New Zealand to Fiji. I just came back from sailing from Hong Kong to Singapore. And I can tell you with assurance that four or five weeks is about my limit on a boat before I have to get off, uh, find some place with air conditioning, a washer, dryer, and a Starbucks to get my cappuccino. So here Jack and Joan are in the Mediterranean. They've been on the boat for quite a while. And Joan is frustrated because she can't work. She's having writer's block, which is understandable. You don't work on a boat. When you're living on a sailboat, life becomes very simple. It's usually about waking up in the morning, thinking about breakfast, cleaning up after breakfast, taking a swim, thinking about lunch, eating lunch, cleaning up after lunch, taking a swim, and then getting ready for dinner. Uh, and that's when you're in port or at anchor or tied up someplace. Of course, when you're actually sailing, it's grueling. It's long hours on watch, interrupted sleep, and sleep deprivation. So it's quite understandable that Joan is frustrated at this point. Then permit me to tell you. And here, where Omar comes into the picture, here we return to the theme of Romancing the Stone, which is a woman who dreams about romance, finding an opportunity to actually live out an adventure and romance in her personal life. To tell you I need you. You sent me the flowers. They pale by your beauty. Oh, Mary. I read about you. Yes, I know. Time magazine. Well, I'm afraid the Western press cannot understand. One of the things I realized when I worked on horror films with imaginary monsters like 15 or 25-foot alligators is that even when you have a preposterous or imaginary monster, the people in the film, the characters in the film, still must react to it as if that monster really exists. That's where recognizable human behavior comes in to the picture. So the trick here was to have Joan and Jack react to this fantastic situation the way real people would react. When I look at this film, it brings up lots of memories that have absolutely nothing to do with the storytelling and the story we're talking about, but have to do with the process that I was talking about. We were shooting this particular scene in Cannes on the rooftop of Le Palais de Royale uh, with lots of beautiful extras, with this incredibly beautiful Mediterranean scenery in the background. But two days prior to this, we'd been shooting in Morocco in the most difficult conditions that you can imagine, which I'll talk more about when we get to some of the Moroccan scenes. So there was a little bit of culture shock going on 
while we were shooting this scene. He will carry on the work of the great redeemer who has disappeared. You have listened very well. You got all that in 20 minutes? As a friend of Miss Wilder's, you are very welcome to be my guest also. Thank you. My pleasure. Could I talk to you for a minute, please? As fantastic as the story might be, uh, Joan Wilder going off to uh, rescue the Jewel of the Nile, the gravity of this story, the underpinning of the story, is the reality and believability of the relationship between Jack and Joan, which this scene epitomizes, where there are two dreams, her dream to experience and write about romantic adventure and his dream of sailing to Greece collide. So when are you gonna leave? Tonight, um, he has a private jet. And... Oh, he's got a private jet. Oh, what the hell, we had a good run, didn't we? Oh, Jack, come on. Uh, this is just five or four weeks of research. Well, maybe you're right, maybe we need a break. Yeah, it's, it's been kind of tough lately. Yeah, when the going gets tough, the uh, tough go to Greece. No film, whether it's a romantic adventure like this or a horror spoof like Alligator or a straight-out horror film like Cujo, will work unless it has real characters that we believe in, that we understand a little about. Without caring about the characters, we really aren't going to care about what happens to them. You take care of yourself. Can you stay out of trouble? Look after it, will you? I can offer you this comfort. She leaves you for a higher purpose. We had such an interesting cast of characters. The Sufi assassin who just jumped into the picture uh, was a member of the Flying Karamazov Brothers, which is a magical juggling troupe uh, which, who got their start in San Francisco, on the streets of San Francisco, literally, at the same time that Michael was in San Francisco shooting his TV show. I never did find out whether that's where he first heard about them. They uh, had become moderately successful prior to this film. Uh, they had a Broadway show, and we cast them as picture because we knew that they would do something zany and would be fun to work with. And the bottom line is we wanted the film to be fun.
Well, sweetheart, I guess it's just you and me. God damn it, she was the best time I ever had. Don't cry, scumbag. I'll keep you company. Danny DeVito has to be one of the funniest physical actors on the planet. Uh, in addition to being a, a terrific actor, as he's proven a lot of non-comedic roles, uh, he's a great comedian, and what he does physically is never fails to, to make me laugh. Uh, I don't know any other actor who could make me laugh with his hand in the earlier scene where his hand comes out of the dumpster. It cracked up the whole crew. Ten weeks of rabies shots this long, and all I thought of was you, Colton. Just you. And we always knew that he was going to add ad-lib something funny in every scene that he did. So he and Michael work really well together. I understand that they were friends when they were both starving actors and have a tremendous chemistry together. All right, gentlemen, did I tell you I got malaria in the jail, huh? huh? Every time I, I shake, I shake like this. You know what happens if I shake my trigger finger? And I feel an attack coming on right now. And you know what happens if that happens? You know what happened? It's the end of Mr. Lucky. That's the end of... Holy shit! Holy shit! Next time you luck be so lucky. I am Tarak. You must come with me now. What the hell are you... This is... Uh, of course, Paul Magis again from the Flying Karamazza Brothers. Great face. You must come to help me find the jewel. What jewel? The jewel of the nine. Our most priceless jewel. Later in the film, when we have all the Flying Karamazza Brothers together, you'll have an opportunity to see what they do, see their act, see how funny they are. Yes. Yes. Look, I don't know where you're from and what you're on, but I'm sailing my boat tonight. No, you must come to help find the jewel now, before Omar kill many people. As long as Omar have the jewel, nothing can stop him. Look, I'm going on the boat. You guys can do what you want. I gotta tell you, we were just as surprised as Michael was in that shot that the French authorities allowed us to blow that boat up in the harbor of one of the most beautiful little harbors along the Mediterranean. We created a mess, an ecological mess. We did get it all cleaned up, but that's the sort of thing I don't think that we'd be allowed to do in many places. I'm coming too. The hell you are. Look, you owe me, Colton. So wherever you're going, I'm going. Where are we going? Africa. I love this shot. I was setting this shot up. And by the way, Michael was, uh, Michael was great to work with. I mean, he's one of the finest producers I've ever worked with. He knows his stuff. He's smart. Uh, he's strong. Uh, he gets things done. Uh, and he was really good at wearing two separate hats, the producer hat and the actor hat. And uh, he didn't, when he was wearing his actor hat, he didn't interfere with my, interfere with my directing at all. He was, uh, matter of fact, uh, on one occasion, uh, he uh, asked me to direct him even more. Uh, I guess I was showing him too much deference. Uh, but I always thought he was doing fine on his own. He created the character. Uh, and 
But in that shot of the helicopter approaching, there is a guard in the foreground. Uh, I'll never forget that uh, I've wanted to shoot it without the guard. Michael wanted me to shoot. It's one of the few times where he asked me to ch actually change a shot and put something in it. And uh, so we did. And I must admit, it works better having that guy in the shot. Here in this scene, you see a lot of military hardware. One of the reasons we picked Morocco was that they would give us the, the tanks and the other military hardware we needed to uh, shoot this story. The F-16 you saw back there was, uh, the F-16, the jet fighter you saw back there, was manufactured in Nice by our art department who took an F-16 model replica, blew up the plans to life-size, and recreated that jet in aluminum, rivet for rivet, to be authentic. As a matter of fact, it looks so authentic, and we manufactured it in France, that when we transported it to Morocco, which we did in a C-47 cargo jet, when we unloaded it, so the story goes, this might be apocryphal, but as I understand it, it was spotted by spy satellites that thought Morocco was buying military hardware from the United States and created a little bit of an international furor till they found out that it was a replica. Cat, come. Oh, I have a cat. Back up! This scene was shot in a private house in Fez, Morocco, which is the spiritual capital of Morocco. I guess they call it the spiritual capital because there are more mosques there than anywhere else in Morocco. We were staying in a hotel, the Palais de Jemay, on a hillside in Fez, and it was a steep hillside so that a mosque, which was slightly downhill from my room, only slightly downhill, had a minaret, which was very close to my bedroom window. And at every morning, around dawn, and sometimes before dawn, the muzim started chanting, Hey, Alala. So every morning, I'd wake up at 4 o'clock, being asked to go to my morning prayers, You start seeing in this sequence some of the beauty of Morocco. This shot was shot outside Wazazat, which is a town near in southern Morocco, just on the edge of the Sahara Desert. But you can see the high Atlas Mountains in the background, which were snow-capped in March when we were shooting the scene. A lot of people ask me because of the title if this is supposed to take place in Egypt or whether we shot in Egypt. And I have to point out that no, it's a mythical country set on the Nile. 
and that there are about nine countries that either border on the Nile or one of the Nile's tributaries. We picked Morocco finally, even though we knew it would be more difficult to shoot there because it didn't have the filmmaking infrastructure. We picked Morocco because of the beauty, the variety of terrain, the villages, the souks, the marketplaces like this that we couldn't have gotten elsewhere, plus desert, plus green, verdant areas that you'll see periodically through the film. Do you speak English? Give back the jewel. Give back the jewel? Since there is very little infrastructure, filmmaking infrastructure in Morocco, by that I mean technicians uh, to work on film, experience electricians, grips, camera people, et cetera, et cetera. We had to virtually bring everybody that we needed. We wound up having 17 different nationalities working on the film. The uh, key people, the producer, director, actors, were American. The uh, art department was English. The director of photography, Jan de Bont, is Dutch. Uh, he had Germans working in his camera crew. Uh, we had, I had a Spanish assistant director who I'd worked with a couple of times, Kuki Lopez, because he's multilingual. I've done several films either in Europe or with European crews, and even though I speak a little Spanish, German, and French, I needed somebody fluent, and Kuki Lopez is quatrilingual. Uh, and which was really important on this film. We, the stunt people were from Italy. The horse trainers were from Spain. We wound up having a lot of Arabic labor and help on the film. So instructions on set had to be delivered. And we finally boiled it down so that we could deliver all the instructions on the set in English, French, Spanish, and Italian. Here we have the flying Karamazov brothers starting to do their thing. Spectacular jugglers. I saw this group, the flying Karamazov brothers, performing in the Wheeler Opera House in Aspen once, and they issued a challenge before their performance for people to bring things for them to juggle, that they will juggle anything. They wound up juggling dead chickens, horse hearts, all kinds of gross stuff. You help us find the jewel, and we give you great reward. But if you lie to us, you die. But now, 
messing with me. Oh, what's that I hear? A heart breaking? You sap! Better keep your mind on business, Romeo. You wind up getting yourself killed over some broad who dumped you. Jules. One of the things I want to mention about this film is how professional Kathleen, Danny, and Michael were on the set. The What I've observed in film, as in any situation where leadership is involved, is that the tone gets set at the top, and people tend to fall into line and emulate the, whoever is setting the tone. And uh, Michael Douglas, producing this movie, having worked with these actors before and starring in it, uh, was always prepared, on the set, on time, ready to work in some of the most difficult situations, whether it was 120 degrees out during Ramadan. Uh, he would always be there, prepared, and... I noticed that, unfailingly, Danny and Kathleen were right there with him all the time. So and it was definitely one of the most pleasant experiences in, in, in the sense of the actors being professional and prepared that I've ever encountered. Kathleen was also very willing to do physical things like climbing outside the, the ledge. We never put her in a, a really dangerous situation. She always had a harness on or protection. 
but she was willing to to do the work and some of the scary stuff, like that scene and hanging off the side of a moving train, which you'll see later. A real trooper, they're all troopers, in the finest sense of the word. This is not a cheap theatrical stunt. It's a miracle. My people have to believe it. Omar, trust me, trust what I've got to say. Look, if I can make gods out of rock and roll stars, imagine... One of the uh, qualities of Romancing the Stone that I wanted to emulate in this film and that Michael wanted was to uh, always keep contemporary touches, even though it's take, the story's taking place in an exotic environment. Um, for example, having a rock and roll promoter, producer, technical kind of guy helping set up Omar's speech. Uh, just like in Romancing the Stone, the uh, drug dealer in this remote little Mexican village uh, was driving a big, huge SUV 4x4. And the, the Sufis, even though they're on camelback, uh, have boom boxes and wearing their Ray-Bans and trying to be cool. So there was, it was that mixture of contemporary, what was contemporary then? A lot has changed in the last 20 years. It's not magic trick, it's miracle. I, I am losing patience with you. But you cannot kill me. Even you are superstitious. Al-Jawhara lives. Two nights from now, it will not matter. This scene was all shot on a set so that we could have a breakaway roof and control the fall, make sure Kathleen didn't get hurt. A woman? <coughs> Most unexpected. I gotta get out of here. I gotta stop Omar. Did you bring an army? No, I'm, I'm just Joan Wilder. The jewel here, the jewel of the Nile, the character putting on his turban, is played by Avner Eisenberg, who is an American intellectual clown, I think he's described as. But he uh, is basically a man who is trained in mime and clown. As a matter of fact, he just recently inducted into the Clown Hall of Fame. But he's much more than a clown. He's a, uh, a juggler, a bit of an acrobat, a uh, mime, and a, a cerebral guy in addition to being able to clown around. And we cast him for the same reason. This was Michael's idea, a good idea, basically to bring somebody that into the picture to cast somebody in the picture that would bring an unpredictable, fun element to it. Nevertheless, he's dead. You look pale, Miss Wilder. I'll send you my personal physician. 
this Jack. He is friend for you? Yes. He is my best friend. Stop here. It is dangerous for Sufis to enter Omar's city. Well, now, wait a minute. This guy's already tried to kill me once. Scott, you are guest of Omar. Find for us the jewel. Accept your destiny. Destiny, my ass. So. We'll hook up with a bunch of juju beads. You see what happens? Just take your lead from me and we'll be fine. As you can see, it was a... Difficult film to shoot. There was a lot of production value, a lot of extras, a large cast, a lot of locations. Uh, two of the main reasons we were able to get the film done in time and on budget was the assistant director, Kuki Lopez, a Spanish assistant director that I'd worked with before, who I mentioned before, and Jan de Bont, the director of photography. Jan de Bont is a Dutch cameraman, and I use the word cameraman because in Holland they have a different system than they do in the United States and the UK, uh, in which they, direct, they don't call the cameraman the director of photography. He's a cinematographer. He operates and lights. And that was a system that Jan de Bont came from. And I was familiar with him initially from the Dutch films that he did, like Kichi Tipple. Uh, and I had always wanted to work with him and had the opportunity when I was hired to do Cujo. And I had such a good experience working with him on Cujo because I like to move the camera. I like to design interesting, difficult, complicated tracking shots. And I discovered on Cujo that no challenge was too difficult for Jan de Bont. Jan de Bont, of course, has gone on, subsequent to this film, to become a successful director himself, who directed, of course, as most people know, Speed and Twister. We're here on official business. Now, this is Mr. In planning the look for the film, we talked about it considerably. I wanted an epic look, large vistas, lots of production. Also, I wanted my signature camera movements, complicated dollies, and that sort of thing. I also wanted to give the film a, a golden look, so, which Jan achieved with uh, filters and color balancing.
Kind of going out of your way to duck me, aren't you? You bastard! Ah! Again, they told me you were dead, and I believed them. Oh, I'll never want to feel that way again. Now, does this mean you apologize? Oh, I feel like I'm back in eighth grade here. What is this, the young and the stupid? What the hell is he doing here? Hey, don't get cagey with me, sweetheart. I'm on to it. I know how you two operate. I'll get in there with or without you, dinks. <laughs> Hey, look, guys, lighten up, will you? I only said hello to an old girlfriend here. Just John, we need to go. Wait a minute, wait a minute. Who's this guy? Well, he's a friend. You made friends in there? This scene was shot in a town called Wazazet, uh, where that airport is that I mentioned earlier. And when we filmed there, I believe we were one of the first films to shoot in Wazazet. Since then, I understand it's become somewhat of a filmmaking mecca. They may even have built a studio there. I know a lot of films have been shot in this area. All right, all right, when we get out of this alive, I'm gonna kill you. This section is just straight action stuff, which I was totally comfortable with. I've done a lot of it. I got my start at Roger Corman School of Filmmaking, where I directed second unit on half a dozen action car chase movies for Roger Corman. And then I've done quite a bit of action myself. The Lady in Red, the first film I directed for Roger Corman, had a lot of car chases and action in it. So I'm quite familiar and comfortable with doing action sequences. And the stunt coordinator and second unit director on this film was Glenn Randall Jr., who I'd worked with previously on Stephen King's Cat's Eye, who was an expert working with horses, so he was the perfect choice to work on this film. As I mentioned earlier, this F-16 was a total 100% accurate replica, full-size replica of a real F-16 fighter jet. Except it couldn't fly. And instead of being powered by a jet engine, it was powered by a Chevrolet V-8. Oh, excuse me, excuse me, excuse me, excuse me. 
Okay, Flyboy, your estimated time of departure is right now. So the Chevy V8 is making our plane move. The exhaust is kind of pathetic. We were blowing smoke out the rear end, but it worked. This is before, long before, computer-generated imagery was invented. So we pretty much had to, if we wanted an effect, we pretty much had to make it happen on the set. It was actually a guy hidden down in the air intake of the jet with a steering wheel who was doing the real driving. I never look at a film that I've done without looking at scenes that I'd do differently or wish I'd done something differently. And in this particular scene, I think I, I was a little reckless in terms of how I set it up. Uh, this plane, even though it's not moving very quickly, was actually chasing people around that square. And uh, fortunately, no one got hurt. Somebody's one extra did get his head banged. But if I were to do it again, I probably would have erred on the side of caution more. May not have been as good a sequence. Then again, it may not have made a difference, but I would have been more careful. Film safety is something that I've learned to be very, very careful about. I've never been on a set where anyone's been hurt in a serious kind of way. Thank God.
dyed wool hanging over the alleys is this typical thing that you'll see in Moroccan bazaars. This is one of our few optical effects in the movie. another one. They look a little primitive compared to what we see these days with computer-generated imagery. But effective. It worked. Stop saying that! 
Friends don't stab each other in the back. Ah, come on, look. Look, we'll, we'll team up. We'll find them, we'll get them good. He knows that I will not be denied. Colton's future is bleak. Very bleak. Any idea where we are? Well, the best I can figure out is if we head due east, we should make it to the border. Is that the way to Kadir? No. This is another one of my favorite scenes in the film because the characters are very real, having a real argument. What are you talking about? We got him out like you said. The guy's going to be fine. Now, come on. We swore an oath just joined. I, we go to Kadir. What is it with you? Jesus. I mean, everything's always got to be your way. This is just like the goddamn vote. What do you mean, my way? It wasn't my idea to spend six months on your boat. Oh, no, no, debate was... good. I enjoy. Okay, let me tell you what I put up with. We're moored off the Canary Islands, right? Midnight, sound asleep. Three crazed Joan Wilder fans decide they want the anchor of the Angeline for a souvenir. We were drifting for days. Stop. And what about the other time? I'm sorry. It's time for just Joan. Remember the Costa del Sol, Jack? Oh, come on. He's got to meet me at the governor's for a formal dinner. And you show up with the entire Italian national basketball team! Hey, they were hungry! What? This is exactly what I'm talking about! I just wish sometimes you could think about me! Oh, oh, and I suppose you were thinking all about me when you took off with Omar, huh? Did I tell you he blew up my boat? Our boat? Oh, now it's our boat! It's good, good debate! <laughs> it's equal, no winners. Just, John, we must have a come. Oh, no, no, wait, what do you mean he blew up our boat? Just tell me one thing, why are you risking your life for this guy? I made a commitment. I can't break it. Okay. Okay, fine. But I'm gonna tell you the truth. You know, I didn't come here for you anyway. No. I'm on to something big. A jewel. The jewel of the Nile. Uh, come with us. I am Johara. Uh, th th that means Joe. Thanks, Joe, but no thanks. Wouldn't want her to break her commitment. Oh, Jack. Oh, come on. One of the reasons the plane was partially hidden behind a sand dune is that we didn't blow up the replica. We had extra parts that we put together to blow up. The replica was so cool, we didn't want to destroy it. I think it probably cost about a quarter of a million bucks to make, or maybe more. I don't remember anymore. I just remember it was really expensive. I swear to God, I'll be a good boy from tomorrow on. But tonight I gotta kill Colton. Watching this footage brings back the physical memories of what it was like to be there shooting these shots. The heat, 120 degrees, the food. My God. The dysentery, 
I think we all lost about 10 or 20 pounds shooting this. But we were in Morocco for three or four months between the preparation and the actual shooting. People can surprise you. No, he's just jacking of a change. Like a... Like a stone. <laughs> it's always a stone. Open your hand. Change is not always visible. All right! Let's show some hustle! What? Your buddy Omar! One of the big challenges was to, since I was working with several non-professional actors like Avner here and the Flying Karamazov brothers, the challenge was to get a continuity of Arabic accent in their English. And that was also a challenge with Spiros, even though Spiros focused playing Omar. It was a fine actor, he's Greek. and. We, uh, one of the challenges was to get him, his accent down and consistent with the others. We did a lot of looping, re-recording of sound in post-production to get the voices clear and the accents consistent. I'm very happy with the result. Now, these scenes were actually very difficult to shoot. One of the problems was to get the film crew into interesting locations, which were sometimes inaccessible. And it was very hard to move uh, a film company around that uh, had so many people in it that we really couldn't count. We did not have an accurate count of how many people were on the payroll. I remember one day the assistant director and I were standing on the set trying to calculate how many people were actually working on the film, including all the Arabic laborers and drivers and everything. And we were unable to get a full report because the number varied from day to day. But one of the things we did was we started looking at the cars that were driving by when we were shooting on one of the sets Every car, the first car that went into production that was used on the production had Jewel of the Nile number one in the window. And every subsequent car that was put into use had a card on it. And we saw a car driving by once that had Jewel of the Nile 235 on it one day, which meant that we had at least 235 vehicles in the production which meant there was a driver for every vehicle, which meant there were probably two or three passengers for every vehicle or more. So we, we our educated guess is that at least at one point in the film, there were over 700 people working on this production. 700 people was over 200 vehicles, made it very difficult to move from one location to another. Not to mention the difficulty of getting cameras up uh, on a hillside, shooting down, getting the actors up on a hillside, 
shooting down. Even though we use stunt doubles or photo doubles for the long shot, Michael and Kathleen, as you can see here, had to do a lot of their own work. Personally, being an ex-rock climber, backpacker, skier, sailor, hiker, this was all fun for me. I was in my element. Now, there actually aren't a lot of Nubians in Morocco where we were shooting. So we brought in the Dance Company of Senegal to do the dancing in this show, and a, a lot of extras came along with them. I got a laugh because I'm thinking this the day we shot this particular sequence was the day where Michael turned to me and once and said uh, something to the equivalent of direct me more tell me what to do and I was reluctant to do that because I thought what he was doing was perfect and he knew the character better than anybody and his reactions were I thought totally believable and realistic. I think I did tell him a few things, which uh, I wish I hadn't, because uh, I thought he was doing just fine on his own. <laughs> We're not married. <laughs> I, mean, I would direct in the sense of, in, these, in this particular sequence, I was directing in terms of telling everybody what to do or telling the extras where to go, setting up the camera, the camera moves. Uh, but the script had been written fairly well. Uh, we would rehearse it. And Michael and Kathleen knew their characters. They'd played these characters before. They're consummate actors. And I really didn't feel that I had to tell them how to play their characters. Because there is more than one shooter, that you must Having been a documentary filmmaker before I began directing, I worked for PBS and KCET for years. I made hundreds of documentaries. I was a documentary cameraman, and I was very used to going into ethnically, anthropologically interesting diverse scenes or locations like this. And I knew what they actually looked like, so a lot of my effort as a director in this kind of sequence, in addition to staging the scenes so that the action would play out the way it had been written or the way that we discussed it, was to make it realistic, to make it look 
like the reality that I had actually photographed when I'd been in similar situations. I'm uh, teaching a class at UCLA right now in directing, and one of the exercises I give to the students, I start them off making documentaries, even if they want to be theatrical filmmakers, because I think personally that it's very important for them to have the experience of shooting reality and knowing what things really look like on film, to have that experience so that when they start directing theatrical films, story films, films with actors, that they wish to be realistic, that they, it's in their bones, it's in their bone marrow. This is one of the reasons I love making movies. You get to work with such interesting troopers like the Senegalese dance troupe. This is one of the first scenes we shot 
at night when we got to Morocco, we actually had a problem with the electricians on this show. They were there were ele English electricians that had been hired before I came on the project to work with us in Morocco and. Oh, I got to talk about this scene. I'll get back to the electricians in a bit. But this scene with Danny DeVito where he's forced to walk on coals by, or tricked into walking on coals by the Sufis, uh, was fun to shoot. But, of course, uh, we didn't want to burn Danny's feet. So we, the special effects department created an artificial bed of coals there. It was the surface of that bed of coals was a plexiglass form that was semi-translucent with painted red areas. And by putting red lights underneath and little bits of little openings where fire could flicker through, we created what looked like an actual bed of coals. But that, those close shots right there of his feet, we shot much later in post-production. This wide shot we shot when we were shooting with Danny. And it worked really well, but it wasn't completely convincing to me. So in post-production, I hired a photo double who's to match Danny's feet, who would actually do a firewalker, a firewalker from San Fernando Valley that I had seen a videotape of. And we brought him over to England where we were shooting at Twickenham Studios doing our post-production pickups. And he burned a cord of logs that they raked out. They were 240 degrees Fahrenheit, and they were raked out to a length of about 20 feet. And the photo double actually walked on those coals, and I had to do 10 takes, and he repeated it 10 times, and he didn't burn his feet. The upshot of the whole story is that when he, after we'd finished shooting the close-up inserts of his feet to match Danny's, uh, he asked me if I'd like to try it. And I did. It was amazing. Walked on coals. But it's the kind of thing you don't want to try at home. Only do it with an experienced firewalker. I've come to the conclusion that there are three elements that one needs in any successful love story on film. One, characters that you've grown to know and care about. Two, the characters have to earn each other's love. And three, there has to be actual chemistry between the actors. And I think we, or Michael and Kathleen, achieved all three. I just expect too much. You would both expect too much. Oh, 
This scene was shot in the High Atlas Mountains on a little outcrop of rock that was perhaps 100 feet from the road, but it was 100 feet up uh, the hillside, and it, we shot this early in the production, and it's where I first learned how out of shape most people that work on film productions are. I'm not talking about Kathleen and Michael, I'm talking about the art directors and the grips and the electricians because I never heard so much griping in my whole life. You mean we got to walk up that hill with the cable and the lights? Yeah, God damn it. No. Joe is the jewel. Actually, I could have shot it closer to the road and nobody would have known the difference. A holy man, that's his religious title. Why didn't you tell me the truth? Why'd you keep it from me? Because I thought if you knew, you wouldn't come with us. Maybe I would have surprised you. I think I've come through once or twice, if I remember right. I'm sorry. You're right. You come through all the time. This scene was shot in the very northern part of Morocco, north of the High Atlas Mountains. And there was a lot of water. As a matter of fact, it was raining this day. The sun happened to be out at this particular moment, but you could see at the very beginning that there were dark clouds in the background. We shot this scene with the train very early in the production in Morocco, and I believe it was the beginning of March. And it was cold, cold, cold. It was designed to look hot like the rest of the movie so that it would be consistent. But it was freezing, freezing by California standards, which meant maybe in the 50s and wet, high 40s, low 50s, wet, damp, windy. And when you're outside without heat, for a lengthy period of time, wearing thin cotton clothes in 40 and 50 degree weather, when it's damp, it really, really gets cold. And the irony is that Michael Douglas told me a story when I first got hired on this film about why he wanted, why he set the story in the Middle East. He said romancing, on Romancing the Stone, it was wet, wet, wet. They were shooting in rainforests and jungles. And so when the studio asked him to do a sequel, his first thought was, 
I got to go somewhere hot and dry, hot and dry. And here we were on our first couple of weeks of shooting in drizzle, cold drizzle, rain, cold, rain, drizzle, freezing our butts off. Unfortunately, Jan de Bunt had asked me what the weather was going to be like and what he should bring. And I told him hot and dry, so he wasn't dressed warmly enough either. I think he still has a resentment. You can see the storm clouds in the background. Cold, wet, drizzle. Here's Kathleen again, being physical, doing incredible work, being courageous and hardworking, and a real trooper. Not to mention Michael Douglas. Most of the long shots, of course, were with stunt doubles, but Michael and Kathleen actually had to get up on the train when it was moving to shoot these scenes. And even though Kathleen was tied in with a harness, it was difficult, it was hard work. She got bruised up, banged up. Totally impressed, I'm totally impressed with the work she did and Michael did on this. All the wide shots and the long shots and the shots with stunt doubles were done by the second unit, which was directed by Glenn Randall Jr. and photographed by a German cameraman named Alexander Witt, who worked as the camera operator on Cujo with Jan de Bont and who had a great idea. Alexander's gone on to become a very good director himself. <laughs> Come Danny on the camel. It cracks me up every time I see him. We were able to get wonderful cooperation from the Moroccan government, which controlled the railroad. And we got army equipment, we got the tanks, the half-tracks, the armored personnel carriers that you saw earlier. We got the use of trains and a lot of logistical equipment. But we did get off to a rocky start because we were shipping our equipment from France in giant containers, and some of the containers disappeared with a lot of expensive equipment and props on them. And it really looked as if our production was going to be in jeopardy when Michael, whose father, Kirk Douglas, knew King Hassan. So Michael went to pay a visit to King Hassan, a courtesy visit. But during the courtesy visit, he mentioned that some of our containers had disappeared. 
And after telling King Hassan, they miraculously reappeared the next day. Amazing how that works. In just about every scene with Danny DeVito, at least one of the lines has been improvised. One of the problems in shooting in any scene that has camels and horses in it is that camels move about half as fast as horses. You always have to make adjustments for that. I like this shot. Watch this shot. Looks like the train destroyed the camera. I put, a, I put a mirror on the tracks and shot into the mirror so the camera only, the train only destroyed the mirror. Welcome, welcome. I don't usually travel by train, but I had a small accident with my helicopter. May we reach Kadir in time. Inshallah. Here's another special effects shot. The lower half of the shot was real and the upper half was all a matte painting of the city in the background. Now these scenes with the Flying Karamata brothers and Danny entering Kadir in this concert hall were shot in a town called Maknas which is also northern Morocco. And we shot these sequences during Ramadan. The problem with shooting during Ramadan, we have 5,000 extras working, and they don't eat during Ramadan till after the sun sets. And they were one, a hungry bunch of extras. They did not have a lot of energy. Is that the goat blood? Yes. Very popular with the inhabitants of these catacombs. Yes. Yes, and they will eat until they get the very last drop. But don't worry, Mr. Colton. 
You won't be alone. Rashid is now placing acid that will eat through Miss Wilder's rope. What kind of sick pervert would go to this trouble? <laughs> Why don't you shoot us? Jack? I mean, what kind of demented psychopath would even think of this? The Savage Secret. What? Was my biggest seller. Oh. Think about this pit as your last adventure, John Wilder. My people await me. Rashid! What are you talking about? I'm used to working with professional people. You tell his highness the show starts with him or without him. Goddamn beanie convention. Wind up going home with a rug. The entrance. Give me a red to the yellow and cue. I said, give me a red gel down there. Q! For God's sake, Q! The uh, metaphor for this uh, scene, the inspiration was Lenny Riefenstahl meets a David Bowie concert. Now, if that went over anybody's head, <laughs> what I mean is that it's uh, sort of patterned after the Nuremberg rallies that were staged to to glorify fascism with the techniques of a rock concert. The art department did a fantastic job. We uh, were rewriting the end of the script while we were shooting. So this scene, which is a logistical nightmare for the production designers and art department, 
was extraordinarily well done considering the amount of time they had. And I think it's only fitting at this point to mention that uh, we did suffer a terrible loss uh, during pre-production. This didn't happen while we were shooting, but when we were in Morocco scouting locations at one point, I was traveling around with the art department in two planes, and one of the planes crashed with several members of our art department in it. It was a terrible loss. Richard Dawkins, Brian Coates, and Richard Koch, you'll see a You'll see a tribute to them at the end of the movie in the titles and the final credits. So how'd they get out? What? The savage secret, how'd they get out? Oh, um, Jesse had a knife in, hidden in his boot. You wouldn't happen to have a knife, would you? I'm not even wearing underwear. Great. Joan Wilder. The best. And we're gonna make it. Yeah. Oh, God, I love you, lady. I love you, Jack. Will you marry me? <laughs> yes. Because I don't even want you leaving me again. You're not just saying that because this is it, are you? I'm saying it because I'm not afraid to say it anymore. So where do you want to go on our honeymoon? Lejanza min almati, min dolori al patrida, a Jesorotti! We looped in Omar, Omar chants from the crowd, but what they were really yelling was, we want food, we want food, we're starving. That's the biggest round of all. Ooh, Colton, look at you, you. <laughs> you don't know how many nights I dreamed of this very thing, except your flesh was torn off your body. Well, please just help us down. Well, 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 Colton. I think this calls for a renegotiation. Don't you, Tarzan? Huh? This looks a little bit more like 70-30, or maybe even 80-20. Ralphie, get the rats off my rope. I don't go near rats, buddy. Ralph, do not be afraid. Remember the Sufi way. See with your heart. My heart sees rats, Pop. Don't let this guard fool you. <sighs> Come on, Colton. Where's the jewel? Ralph. I am the jewel, the jewel of the Nile. Yeah, and I'm a kumquat from Queens. Pipe down, towelhead. Come on, Ralph. Take the ladder and put it over the well. Please, please don't let us die. That's a good idea, Legs. 
I ain't gonna let you die, but I ain't moving no damn ladder until you two come across with the rocks. Ah! Make it more like 90-10, huh, kumquat? <laughs> Did you get the ladder all right, buddy? Jack, help me unlock the jewel. The jewel? You mean you weren't shitting me? That guy really is the jewel? Come on, we still got time to stop Omar. Let's go. Ron, that is not the Sufi way. I don't know what got into me, Jules. Every time I'm around this guy, he makes me crazy. Uh, come on, tell him to cut me down, Jules. Come on, come on, huh? Looks like our lady of Mount Carmel schooled you. Excuse me. Pardon me. Pardon me. Coming through. Oh, oh, oh. Oh, Rashid. <laughs> How you doing? Let's talk to sober before you butcher me alive. What are you getting so steamed about? Look at that. It worked. <laughs>
This sequence is one of those sequences I wish I could go back and redo using the computer-generated imagery we're capable of today. It looks okay in the digital version we're looking at here, but on the big screen in film, you can see the, you can detect the opticals. They're not as seamless as they'd be if they were done digitally, the way we can today. Michael is a fit guy doing all that stuff, isn't he? I knew we'd hook up again, Colton. Get it? I swear to God. My right hand to God. Come on. To Miss Wilder. All that will be written for Omar is an epitaph. But I will not be alone. Who is going to save you now? I'm going to sign off in a couple of seconds because I really don't have a lot more to say about the movie except that it was a certainly a highlight of my career. Uh, it was a, an incredible opportunity to work with uh, Michael Douglas, producer, Michael Douglas, actor, Kathleen Turner, Danny DeVito, and it made a quantum leap. It caused a quantum shift in my career put me uh, on the A-list as a director and was one of the wonderful uh, experiences of my life, the whole process. One of the most difficult, logistically difficult things I've ever done and uh, challenging. 
and also one of the most rewarding personally and and professionally. And uh, my only regret is that they haven't made a a uh, another sequel. I know that there, there's been a lot of talk about it, and I don't know why it hasn't happened. I think it's probably been difficult to get all the principals back together again. But maybe, you never know. Maybe there will be a sequel. I hope so. A sequel to the sequel. Of course, at this year, they... If we did it, if they did another sequel now, it would have to be 20 years later, or at least 19. <laughs>